Question, uh, raise your hand if you are left-handed. Any left-handed people here this evening? That's amazing. Uh, more this evening than there were this morning. Do you know, those of you with your hands raised, science has proven that you are, on average, more likely to be smarter than everyone else in the room? Hey, It's fantastic. And uh, you're also, according to science, more likely to die as early as nine years earlier than right-handed people. Crazy, right? They have literally worked out that left-handed people, on average, die nine years younger than right-handed people. And I think I know why. Science can't tell you why. I think I know why. It's because us left-handed people have to deal with things like scissors, handshakes, shoelaces, tin openers, uh, mouses on computers. I mean, just smudging everything you write, trying to get close to margins on the inside page of your... I mean, the stuff that we have to deal with as left-handed people, you guys don't have a clue. It's just really, really bad. And we just, you just don't even consider us no compassion whatsoever. Uh, this is an interesting stat. My mom will probably disagree with this, with me being left-handed. We have better hearing. Left-handed people, according to science, have better hearing than right-handed people. Weird, I know. Here's some interesting stuff. The word left in Old English means weak or broken. Shows you what you guys think of us. In Latin, it means sinister or evil. I mean, they were called left-handed people, like just acknowledging that they're evil. I mean, I don't know where they get that from. Uh, French, also, the word for left means weak. Why am I telling you all of this? In our series in Judges at the moment, we are going to be looking at a left-handed judge. And for some very interesting reasons, this is a big deal in uh, God's salvation history. It's a big deal in the story that we're going to look at and pull lessons out for ourselves. So turn with me to Judges chapter 3. I know when we started the series a few weeks ago, uh, week one of the Judges 1, 2, and 3. Last week, we kind of panned through Judges 10, 11, and 12. Uh, All of that is just kind of setting the context and kind of just building in the series. Um, Apologize if you are really big on chronological kind of series. We're not doing that. We're going backwards, and then we're going to jump ahead again next week. But find Judges chapter 3. That is where we're going to be in tonight. And as uh, what we've been doing in this series, we're going to kind of read a, a bit of the story and then kind of pull out the spiritual lessons for us and how what happened in the time of Judges uh, applies to us today. All right, so we're in Judges chapter 3, and uh, I'm just going to read verses 1 and 2 to start us off, and then we're going to get into our character for this evening. Just to remind you of the uh, kind of the context, uh, this is the time in Uh, the life of God's people, the Israelites, where they were in slavery in Egypt. Uh, God took them out of slavery into the land that he had promised them to Abraham, uh, their inheritance. They entered it under Joshua, their leader. They failed to uh, complete the command of driving out the nations that were there. And as a result, that became a continual problem for them. And whenever they sinned and disobeyed God, God used those nations to oppress them. Uh, They would then cry out to God for salvation, for a savior. He would then raise up an individual who is a judge in the book, and then he brings uh, deliverance to God's people, and the cycle just continues and continues. So that's the context. Right, chapter 3 and verse 1, it says, Now these are the nations that the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced 
all the wars in Canaan, it was in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war to teach war to those who had not known it before. Well, we covered that briefly in week one, but uh, just a, a question that people ask is, why did God leave pockets of Canaanites in the promised land? Right, we know that the first generation of Israelites had not believed God enough to drive them out. So that was one of the core reasons. They just didn't believe God enough, and they just weren't driven out. They didn't believe God, but there are other reasons. And the, the one big reason is that he wanted them there to teach the generations to come afterwards to learn how to fight battles in God's strength. That's a really important uh, understanding of what's happening in Judges. God's grace in the situation, even though they were disobedient, even though they failed to trust God, God uses these pockets of Canaanites that were in the land and other nations that they are there so that God can teach the nations and the generate or the, the generations that come afterwards to fight battles in God's strength. So here's just a, a little bit of an analogy to kind of think it through. So imagine you're an Israelite child. And you're coming home from Sunday school, and in the lesson this, that, that day, you hear the teaching, and you understand and learn that the promised land that you're living in is the inheritance that you got from God. This is the promised land, the land given to you by God. But you're also aware that there are pockets of all of these Canaanites around you. And so you say to your dad, walking home, you say, Dad, why are all these unbelieving people left in our land? Didn't God give us this land? And so your dad would then have to say something back to you like this. Listen, it's actually because of the sin of our parents that these pockets of Canaanites are still here and are still giving us a hard time. Maybe the conversation goes, but Dad, it's not our fault. Surely after they died, you know, wouldn't God just... just driven them out for us. Maybe, you know, whatever, just cause them to leave. Why, why didn't God do that? And the dad would have to answer something along the lines of, it's to test us, to see that if we would believe God and to trust God enough to fight for us and to apply this to ourselves, have you ever asked the question, why does God not just cure us of our sin? Why doesn't God just take away the sin and hardship that we experience? What we mean by that is like bring heaven now. No pain, no suffering, no sin, no hardship. Why doesn't God do that now? And again, I think it's really the exact same answer. He wants us to learn to struggle against these things in his strength, to teach us to rely on on his grace, not on our flesh, not on our strength. I'm not saying that every single moment of pain that you experience, a hardship in your life, is something that God wants to teach you or that there's a lesson to pull from it. But if you think of the Apostle Paul in the New Testament, he writes uh, in, in one of his letters how God gave him what he calls a thorn in the flesh. And repeatedly he prays and asks God to remove it from him. In the end, he goes, no, this has been given to me to keep me humble because when I am weak, then God is strong and I trust him more with this. Because imagine this. It's quite possible that God will allow a lesser sin in our lives to keep us from uh, falling into a greater sin. Imagine if fingers snap, all sin is gone from our lives, we run the risk of becoming incredibly prideful. 
If, if we don't have stuff to keep us humble and trusting God and relying on His grace every single day, we run the risk of becoming, uh, falling into pride, which is a lot more dangerous for us. If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Spiritual growth is primarily growth in my knowledge of my need for grace. Spiritual growth is primarily growth in my knowledge of my need for grace. Because if God uses things in our lives that we continually struggle with, and what it does is just produce more faith, more grace, more dependence on God every single day, then it is actually a good thing. And in the supremacy of God that he can even use something like continual sin to cause us to rely on him more and more and more. And when we see in Judges, we see that God uses someone who is broken, who struggles, but sets the Israelites free and fights and teaches them to fight and to go to war and drive out the nations and to destroy the idols that they are worshiping. It gives us faith and hope that while we are aware of these things, that we can also learn to fight against the things that we're struggling against and learn to rely on God's strength and His grace in the battle. Every single generation, because you see, they get uh, set free from oppression, and you'll hear in the story, they had peace for 80 years. Then there's a new generation who comes up, who learns to fight in God's strength. And so for us, we have an opportunity tonight to, even though we're realizing all the things that we struggle against, but to step forward and to actually trust God and push into faith and trusting Him. Right, so we are then going to move down to Judges chapter 3 and verse 12 as we get into our judge for tonight and to read that story and then to pull out some lessons tonight. Tonight we can't do this story justice. There's just so much going on in it. We're only going to pull a few things out this evening. So chapter 3, verse 12. Uh, This judge, his name is Ehud, and uh, there's some interesting things going on in this passage. So we read together. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel. They took possession of the city of Palms, and the Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man. Now, this is important because for him to be acknowledged as a left-handed man, there was something wrong with his right hand. Uh, Crippled, uh, in some form, withered, crushed, we we don't know, but he could not use his right hand. And this is important because in his culture at that time, people were only right handed. And for this is important in the story, he would have been seen as a cripple, treated as a cripple, uh, something wrong with him that he had to use his left hand. Uh, the son of Gera the Benjamite, the Israelites sent him with tributes, tributes to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Ehud, uh, Ehud made a double-edged sword about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. So here we have uh, the tribute is going to this king, and it is being brought by a crippled man who has a concealed weapon on his right thigh. Uh, This is important because no one's looking for a weapon there because everyone is right-handed. 
So everyone's weapon is on their left-hand side. No one expects a crippled person uh, carrying a concealed weapon on their right-hand side. This is uh, some Mission Impossible stuff going on here, uh, quite exciting for, for Israel. Right. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said, Your Your majesty, I have a secret message for you. The king said to his attendants, leave us. And they all left. All right, this is a king. He sends his attendants. You know that uh, some of the attendants of a king are also trained to protect the king. This crippled, uh, subjugated Israelite possesses no threat to the king that he sends everybody else. He can't be a threat because he has a crippled right hand. Ehud Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull out the sword, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch, shut the doors to the upper room behind him, and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found that the doors of the upper room locked. They said he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. And they waited to the point of embarrassment, but did not open the doors of the room. They took the keys and unlocked them, and they saw their Lord fallen to the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarai. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over, and they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Right, a crazy story, and it's really important to... Uh, see what's happening here. And so point one, when we look at the story, is this. God's Savior would come in weakness. God's Savior would come in weakness. There's a very interesting trajectory that's happening in this passage. So you've got Joshua who leads the Israelites into uh, Canaan to take control of the promised land. He is seen as your atypical warrior leader. Leads from the front into battle, victory after victory after victory after victory, the strong leader that everyone looks to. He dies, Israel then needs other leaders, and what happens is this trajectory from strength to weakness. You've got the strong man Joshua, and the next person to lead them into major victory is a crippled uh, right-handed person. The next person after him actually is a lady by the name of Deborah. And if you think about strength, the Israelites' image of strength is shattered because it's a woman who delivers them. If you know anything about the culture of Israel, they thank God that, or the men pray a prayer where they thank God that they're not a woman. 
And so the idea that victory and salvation will come from a woman just blows uh, any uh, kind of understanding of where would our help come from. The next person after her is a guy by the name of Gideon. And Gideon's an interesting character. He's described as being the weakest person from the weakest family, from the weakest clan, in the weakest tribe, and they find him hiding in a well, kind of thrashing wheat, doing this kind of futile task. He's so scared to go outside, and when he saves Israel, it's not even with all of the nation, it's with 300 men, and they win the battle by playing musical instruments. And you see the trajectory. It goes from strength to weakness as God wins the battle with his strength. The next person after that is a guy by the name of Samson, and he fights with the jawbone of an animal. He doesn't even take people with him in setting Israel free. He fights alone. The book of Judges closes with people wanting to be like the nations around them, and they say, God, give us a king. And so when it comes to appointing a king, uh, a prophet goes to a family saying, like, God says the king's going to come from one of the sons in this household. The father brings out all the sons, and the one that God picks is the one the father's too embarrassed to bring out. because it's impossible to be the shepherd boy who I've left out in the fields, but that is the one who is God's king. And even then, he as a boy kills a giant. And you see this move from strength to weakness as God deals with the battles with his people. And I love it because it ends up with our final Savior being the most left-handed of them all. Isaiah says this about Jesus. Nothing in his appearance would attract us to him. He was despised and rejected by men. There's a lot of movies made about Jesus, and somehow Hollywood chooses to pick people with these bright blue eyes, perfect hair, really good looking. I don't know if they've read this. Nothing in Jesus' appearance would make us think that must be the Savior. Nothing about his stature, his demeanor, his presence would have drawn us to him and going, he is the kind of guy that's going to set us free from Roman oppression. We know that the Israelites uh, were waiting for God to send someone. Nothing in him would have gone, that's the Savior. And even then, when his enemies were kind of gloating about their victory over him, they just didn't see it coming. The Roman soldiers mocking him, spitting at him, laughing at him, dressing him up, going, you're mocking him as a king. So easy was it for them to uh, just kill Jesus. The Jewish leaders, quite smug and going, all we had to do was pay an inside of his group to rat him out to us. That's all it took for us to crush this messianic kind of uprising. And while they're kind of gloating at their defeat, not seeing, just thinking and seeming just the weakness in Jesus, I love this. They're mocking him on the cross. And just as Ehud, the fat king, kind of leans forward No threat whatsoever to this crippled in the room. This knife stabs him in the gut. While everyone's mocking Jesus on the cross, he pulls out the knife of the resurrection and shatters all the enemies that we had. See, people missed Jesus. Because what people were thinking and expecting was a different kind of Messiah. Not understanding and seeing this trajectory from strength to weakness, when they saw Jesus, they just missed him as Messiah. 
See, the Jews were looking for this military leader who would set them free from uh, Roman oppression, that they would drive out the Romans, establish them as a kingdom again, and bring about riches and prosperity. That's what they were looking for. That's what they were hoping. Uh, the, Jew, uh, the Gentiles and the Greeks, again, they uh, were a huge stumbling block uh, for them was Jesus because they were wanting this intellectual person who would kind of bring all of this enlightenment and knowledge and truth. No one was expecting a homeless criminal on a cross as everyone called him. And the danger for us is that we miss Jesus because Judges tells us that God is going to send salvation in a way that no one was expecting and that a lot of people would miss. See, so many people stumble with Jesus and they go, well, I went to church. I tried religion. It didn't work for me. I still have pain in my life. I'm still suffering. You know, Jesus didn't solve my problems because we think our greatest problem is suffering on earth. And that what we want is a savior to take away our suffering, to take away our pain. We want a savior that's gonna make life easy for us. And if we could, that's what we would want. And so that's why we pursue so many of these things in our lives because we think money's my savior. You know, so I work harder to get more money to try and have an easier life because if I have this amount of money in my bank account, I'm going to be safe. My family will be safe. So we think money's our savior, kind of where we live or the status that we have in life. And so then we turn away from Jesus because we think our greatest problem is suffering on earth. But we know that our biggest issue isn't pain in this world, but it's separation from God. The problem isn't that we suffer from cancer and die. It's our problem that we are separated from Jesus. And we're so thankful that his death destroyed the curse of death through his resurrection. Because when it comes to Jesus, we get to say things like this, death, where is your sting? Grave, where is your victory? Because all of those things, which are our greatest problem, were destroyed by Jesus' death on the cross. I love the statement, God saves through weakness, surprise, and substitution, not strength and conquest. God saves through weakness, surprise, and substitution, not through strength and conquest. Which then leads to the next major thing as we look at the, the book of Judges is God saves now through the weakness of faith. God saves now through the weakness of faith. See, the people of Israel in the book of Judges is a great example of you and I. See, we're all trying to save ourselves through something. We're all searching for and seeking and trying to find salvation. Religious people are trying to save it through their morality through the effort of the law that they can say, well, I'm morally strong. I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do this and I obey here and I obey here. I must have earned God's salvation through my moral strength. I'm able to obey well. Irreligious people go, I'm strong enough to have earned this much money so my family's safe. It's through my intellectual strength. It's through my entrepreneurial strength or whatever it is that I am saved through my strength and what I have achieved. We're all trying to save ourselves in some way. 
I love what Philippians 4.3 says. And onwards, if you want to find it, it is going to come up on the screen. See, God's salvation is going to come a different way. It's not going to come through strength at all, but completely through a gift. And Philippians, this passage is a bit of a rant by the Apostle Paul, the guy who uh, wrote most of the New Testament on his roots of taking the gospel to his generation, planting churches and, and, and taking the gospel to people who had never heard it before. And he writes this, If anyone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He kind of gives off his, his credentials. And I don't know if you know, to become a Pharisee, it's the highest position of leadership within uh, the people of Israel. Your entrance exam to that, or, or kind of to start your journey of becoming a Pharisee, you have an oral exam where you have to recite the first five books of the Bible word for word without making a mistake. Faultless in his understanding, his knowledge of the law. Even so much so, persecuting the church. This guy was seen as the guy when it comes to being uh, a Jew and an Israelite. Then he goes on to say this. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom's sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes. I want to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, also somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. Here he's going on this incredible rant. If he thinks about everything that he achieved in his own strength, he goes, I consider it garbage. The English is being polite. If that had to be translated directly, he's using a little bit of a swear word for rubbish, dung, poop, is what he's actually saying in this rant. That strong is his feeling by going, every bit of strength that I had in trying to achieve something on my own, this morality that I had based on my own strength and obedience, it's actually dung, rubbish. That's how worthless everything is that I've achieved compared to knowing Jesus Christ by faith. This righteousness that I can only get from believing and surrendering to Jesus. He talks about everything he has in his strength. And it's rubbish, worthless, no meaning whatsoever. But for coming to faith in Jesus Christ, to knowing that righteousness that comes from God by believing and having faith in Jesus, there is nothing that compared to knowing Jesus by faith. Amazing to see how he puts those two things there. Because we love our strength. But he goes, it's rubbish compared to surrendering by faith to Jesus. And this is why as we see the trajectory, God's Savior would come in weakness. And we see that trajectory. God saves us now through the weakness of faith. 
Again, it says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ, who has become for us the wisdom of God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. You know, there's a very interesting thing with us as people. We hate losing. We hate failing. I mean, I have to confess, I, I'm, I love winning. I, I shared this before. I love playing board games. People say, oh, you know, Craig is so competitive, and they love to give me a hard time about it. Hands up if you love losing. Ah, surprise. Oh, Rob's. <laughs> okay. No one likes losing. I mean, how many of us are filled with joy when the sports team that we support loses? Right? We hate it. Okay, how many of us love failing a test or an exam? We feel rubbish afterwards. I mean, how many of us just feel great inside when our business is doing badly? No, none of us love feeling like that. But when our team wins, we're happy, right? When we win on the sports field, we're happy, right? We love that feeling. We love it when we beat our friends at a board game and you know, get to rub it in their noses. We love the feeling of doing well. In fact, we despise weakness. As men in particular, the idea of seeing and seeming to be weak is something that we avoid at all costs. We put on the front of being the macho guy. And in fact, as a people, we are so great at covering up when we are feeling weak. Hey, Craig, how's it going? No, it's going great. And we lie because we don't want to come across and be seen as weak. And the danger for us in our faith when we do that is we keep trying to do things in our own strength. And so we do things in our own strength and in our own strength and we just are going at it in our own strength and in our own strength. And the result is we're just getting burnt out, we're failing, we're just kind of hitting this brick wall over and over and over again. And the big danger is we've missed the point of salvation and we miss the point of God's grace. Because we avoid weakness. I think of chess. Uh, if any of you guys play chess, you know that if you kind of get stuck, there's this moment where the loser kind of has to push over his king and surrender and admit defeat. And it's a terrible moment for anyone who plays chess. But what we hate doing as people is surrendering. Isn't that just like the worst thing that you have to do? But this is what happens when it comes to faith in Jesus. Is salvation is us going, Jesus, I surrender. I cannot save myself. I possess nothing in me to achieve any bit of salvation. I can't do anything to earn one little bit of this. I possess nothing, zero. It is all you. Salvation is going, Jesus, save me, I can't save myself. And so many people miss that and try and strive in their own strength because surrender isn't part of our culture. Surrender is not part of our nature. We wanna do things in our own strength all the time and we pride ourselves on what we're good at. 
I'm an object lesson of this. Some of you guys know a bit of my story. Three years ago, uh, my wife and I were living in Cape Town and loving life. Had uh, a lovely home. We're enjoying ministry. Things were amazing. But we reached a point in our lives where we realized that there was not a single thing in our life that we needed to trust God for. We were not praying prayers of faith. Nothing was hard for us. We didn't need to trust God for anything. So I prayed a prayer that God has answered and is continuing to answer every single day. Our prayer as a couple was this, God, take us to a place where we require faith. The result of that was finding ourselves in the south of Joburg. We love it here. But it has not come without its challenges and its hardships. At that stage, we were only two uh, we only had two kids and our family has grown and the Lord has added uh, in a very unique way to our family story and family makeup. But the result of that is it's become a, a real struggle for Inez and I. I can't share too much about that. But what I have realized and over the last two years and specifically and in the last 12 months and in fact the last three months, God has done more in my life in the last three months than I think my entire life up until this point. And the biggest thing that God has been showing me and dealing with me is that I am a seriously, seriously stubborn individual. That my default setting is to use my own strength. So a bit of my backstory is, uh, you know, I endured a, a hard time at school, so faced a, a bit of bullying and things like that, and, and had to learn to become uh, quite self-reliant. Got to university, did incredibly well. In fact, uh, did exceptionally well at university, and so I pride myself on my academic ability. Those of you who play board games against me, you know how hard it is to beat me at a board game. I just don't roll over. When it comes to sports, I put everything in me to win. Coaching sports, again, beating teams which should never have beaten because I just hate losing. And so always figuring out some way of winning. In fact, if I look back at my life, I don't fail. In ministry, never endured tough seasons in ministry because I was always just good at leading people, good at leading teams. And, and my life up until this year has been quite a success story and largely because I, I'm competent. I'm not boasting. But praying God take me to a place of faith, he has been doing uh, some things to me and bringing me to a place where I cannot figure it out on my own. And that has been a disaster for me. And actually going through a crisis, and I described this to Inez, I said I felt uh, just with everything going on in our home and in our life and the, the pain that we're experiencing and all the hardships and everything that we're going through, I said to her, I feel like I'm in a boxing ring with Mike Tyson, but I'm blindfolded and my hands are tied behind my back. And for me, that's hectic because I always... Uh, feel like I know a way out and I can figure a way out and I can, can kind of do something to win and get out of the situation that I'm in. But where my life's at right now, I have no choice. I have, there is nothing that I can do. There's nothing in me that I can do to get out of the situation that I'm in. And it has been terrifying for me as a male to not know what to do to sort out and fix my family situation had led me to be a, in, in, in a crisis state. 
about a month ago, Inez phoned me one Wednesday morning and she said, Craig, you left this morning and you were just looking like you were just in such a bad place. And I said to her, because I feel like I'm a worn out garment, that if you had to lift me up to the light like a piece of fabric, you can see straight through me, I'm finished, I'm exhausted. I just, I, I just, I have nothing left in me just trying to do more and just use my strength and and figure something out and just try harder and try harder and try harder. And it was in that moment when I just admitted that I just have nothing left that God started to actually speak to me in my life. And it's embarrassing to admit, I've been in full-time ministry for 15 years and I feel like God's only really speaking into my life now because I've gotten to this place where realizing Man, so much of what I've been doing, I've been doing in my own strength. And God's taken me to a place of faith, genuine faith of going, God, I can't do this. And we're realizing, why am I even, why am I even trying to save my family when I've got a father in heaven who loves my family more than what I love them and who cares for them more than what I care for them and who's sovereign and holds everything in his hands? Why am I breaking my back when I just need to surrender? And this has been the hardest thing for me as a male is to admit my own weakness and to say to the Lord, I can't. And to be desperate in my heart and to say, Jesus, I can't do this anymore. I've tried and I'm failing. I need you. And so many of us miss those moments and and, and we're missing the power of God in our lives because we are pushing and striving and trying to do things in our own strength every single day instead of surrendering in faith and going, Jesus, I can't, you must. Jesus, I can't, I know you can. We're struggling financially because we're trying to do things in our own strength. We're controlling our money. We're holding on to our wealth and our finances and we're struggling and we're just not going, Jesus, it's yours. I surrender to you. Take over. I love The Simpsons. Uh, uh, if you've ever watched The Simpsons, you know the intro, there's uh, the little girl who's also driving the steering wheel of the car. And I, I love that analogy because someone else is driving. And so many of us just, we're holding onto the steering wheel of the car and we won't let go. And we're trying to drive our own lives and we're trying to do everything in our own strength. But the best thing we could do is just to move over into the passenger side and say, Jesus, here's my life. I surrender everything to you. I surrender. I surrender. Jesus, take my life. It's taken me far too long to realize how much I was holding on to the things in my life how I thought I was trusting God. And yes, of course, uh, I often, in fact, always pray, God, bless this ministry. God, we trust you to do what only you can. Pray that, but without realizing so much of it, I still was holding the wheel, still trying to do it in my own strength. And the freedom that has come from going, Jesus, it's in your hands. It is frightening. It is frightening to say the words, I surrender. It's frightening to cry out in desperation, realizing that I do not have the strength to do this myself. But for me, I'm realizing that is what living by faith is. Faith is going, Jesus, 
I cannot. I trust you because you can. And this is what Paul is saying in this passage. This is what we're seeing in Judges, what we're seeing with Jesus. Salvation comes when I say, Jesus, save me. I cannot save myself. And that goes to every single area of my life. And it's so important to see that in this story with Judges. Weakness is something that we embrace by faith and saying, Jesus, save me. I surrender. Words that we hate. Words that we avoid. But so important when we come to Jesus, the gift of salvation is I surrender. We're gonna come and take communion now. And my prayer to you is this. Where do you need to surrender? You know, we talk about idols. We talk about putting Jesus first. But there's so many layers to that. And if you're like me, and I'm sure you are, there's so many things that we just still hold on to and we're not prepared to give to Jesus. The cross, Jesus in our place for us sin. And all we do to receive his salvation is surrender to say, I can't do this myself. Jesus, I accept your salvation. Man, spend some time repenting. Just saying, Jesus, well, I've done this too much on my own. And again, just surrender Give him the steering wheel. Those parts of your life that you're just experiencing uh, failure because you're just trying to do too much on your own. Give that to Jesus. Jody's just going to minister in song. While that's happening, in your own time, come and take communion and then I'll close off for us. Jesus, I'm so thankful for your gift of salvation. I am so thankful for what you have done for us. And what salvation is, is me just surrendering. Jesus, we can't. We possess nothing in us that could ever even get a bit of us saying, I earned that. I can boast in what I've done. It is 100% us boasting in you and you alone. We can only boast in you, Jesus. Remind us of that tonight when we come and remember your body broken for us, your blood spilt for the forgiveness of our sin. We thank you, Jesus.